0: Welcome to the Bible Questions Podcast, brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Bible Questions Podcast. We really appreciate you joining us. And, Jeff, you know, it's always encouraging to have listeners that have an interest in spiritual matters. And so, whether it's listening to this podcast or even visiting our website and submitting a question, It's always refreshing to know that there are many out there that are just seeking the truth and are asking for some help in doing that
0: well and certainly is encouraging to those of us who answer questions on the website i mean i've kind of lost track but i think the website's been functional for you know over 20 years and every week we're still seeing you know a steady flow of people from around the world you know asking all kinds of very interesting questions about god or jesus or the bible or the meaning of different words etc and one of the things that encourages me is they are taking the initiative you know they're coming you know they're asking the question they're seeking information uh, and for the most part are are asking you you know really good questions get a lot of good interaction with people it's really rare that we get someone who's Antagonistic or hostile, or et cetera. So that's also kind of a blessing, you know, for those of us who are kind of working on the, the staff, so to speak, answering the questions.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. And, you know, when we think about one of the reasons we do this podcast is to really help everyone to go to the Bible for the answers to your questions. You know, there are literally thousands of religions today, many of which were not only founded by men and women, but who basically adhere to creeds and or you know in some ways they say they follow the bible but they've twisted the scriptures and so really what we want to encourage everyone to do and i know you probably for those regular listeners hear us say this a lot and that is regardless of what jeff and i say or anybody says take notes go to the scriptures search to find out if what we're saying is true or anyone else and ultimately that's the standard that's what you need to follow so just would encourage you to do that so jeff Today, we're going to be looking at recently submitted questions. We like to do this a few times a year to give our listeners some insight into questions that are submitted. So we looked over the last three months, I believe, and just kind of picked out some questions that we thought might be interesting to you. So as we go along, some of the passages we will read. Other times we will give you a reference. So if you have a pen or pencil handy and a a pad of paper, uh, take some notes and do a little further study and certainly encourage you to spend some time learning more about what we discuss. So Jeff, before we get into our questions, anything else you want to add? Not on my behalf, let's just go for it. Okay, the first question is for you from Dang, and he says, hello, Uh, wasn't the punishment, and then he has in parentheses, hell, too severe for the sin committed by the third servant in the parable of the talents? Or was he guilty of more than just one sin aside from the unwise use of the talent like blaspheming or disrespecting the name of his master who symbolizes our Lord to merit such a punishment? Many thanks, he says. <laughs> Normally what I do, I will often do is like dig into the details
0: and sort of give the summary answer at the end. I think I'm going to reverse that for just a little bit here. And basically, uh, digs dang, on to something. It's more than just the unwise use of the talent or money uh, in the parable. Yes, indeed, he very much disrespected, you know, his master who, as Dane correctly points out in this parable, you know, symbolizes our Lord. So with, with that as sort of the quick answer, now let's go back and fill in the details. It certainly sounds like he's referring to a parable in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Or maybe Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. If you're not familiar with the passage, basically a person who had multiple servants was going on a journey and gave each servant some amount of money, which in this context was expressed with the word talent. Nothing to do with skills, uh, more of a monetary sum. And went on his way. And then after a while, came back. There was a reckoning so to speak. So, you know, the servants came forward. The one who had been entrusted with, you know, five units of money had earned five more. The one who had been entrusted with two had earned two more. And the one who had been entrusted with the one pretty much went out, dug a hole in the ground, buried it, and did nothing. And then there's this conversation, which I'll get into in just a moment, between him and his master. And as a result, uh, the master basically punished the third servant. So that's sort of like the, the overview. Some details that are important to the story Matthew chapter 25, verse 15. To one, he gave five talents, to another, two, and to another, one, to each according to his own ability. So, first of all, we need to recognize that the master, which in this context would be God, rightly entrusted his servants with in this particular case money according to their own ability. So, this was not an unreasonable. Or unfair assessment. It is a very just kind of assessment of their abilities. That's one piece of the puzzle. Second piece of the puzzle, skip on down to verse 24 of Matthew 25. And he who had received the one talent, Eamon said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you had not sown, gathering where you had not scattered seed, and I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. The second piece of the puzzle is kind of a I don't know, an insulting attitude or an accusatory attitude, etc., to go on top of what he had, you know, not done. And then, of course, the third piece of the puzzle, uh, a couple of verses later in verse 26, where the master does a righteous assessment and basically tells the third servant that he is wicked and lazy. Uh, verse 30, unprofitable. So, you wrap all the pieces of the puzzle together, and, and yeah, it's more than just... unwisely taking care of his master's money, also the underlying attitude, if you will, disrespectful, that resulted in him being punished. And you know, Brian, I think there's probably an important lesson for us today, for, you know, self-proclaimed Christians who say we are of Christ, or say we are Jesus' disciple, or acknowledge Jesus as our Savior, but not necessarily as our Lord and Master and someone we need to obey on an ongoing basis in order to be faithful. Brian, anything you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, and you think about, you know, the Bible teaches us about the principle of stewardship, and uh, that might be a good subject for us to dive into someday, but, you know, God has blessed us with so many things, one of those being talents and abilities. And he expects us to do the best with what he has given us and be good stewards of those talents. And certainly, as you said here, the talent, of course, is talking about money, but you know, he gave each one according to his ability. And so I would just encourage our listeners to think about the fact that what God's really asking you to do is to find out what abilities you have and use those to the, the best you can to do the good works that he created us to do. And so, anyhow, kind of a secondary lesson there, right, Jeff? But connected to this parable.
0: Very good. Okay, on to the second question, and this one's for you, coming from Kendra. And it's a little bit of a lengthy one, so kind of bear with me. For God created man, he knew about the fall of man and that most people would end up in hell, as described in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. So I do not understand how a God of love go ahead and create people knew would end up in hell i couldn't do such a thing and i'm a sinner i mean it's kind of like bringing a deformed mentally challenged baby into the world you know you before you ever conceive that this will happen it just doesn't make any sense to me and it's causing me a lot of anxiety your help would be greatly appreciated
1: It's an interesting question, and no doubt when we start thinking this way, it can lead us down the wrong path. Like, for instance, if you feel this way, would you say that as a parent, you would not have a child because that child may not be faithful or they might do something wicked, so therefore I'm just not going to have children? I don't know that people think that way when it comes to children. So when you think about the overall creation and God, You know, I think it's really important that we just kind of start by looking at why did God create mankind? And we ask that, right? All of us at some point, why am I here kind of question. So, over in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So we see here first and foremost that God wanted to create us in his image, and he wanted to give us dominion over everything on the earth. Verse 28 then goes on to say, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God also created man that he might be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, as he mentions there. So we can get some more information about why God created mankind. Jeff, if I could get you to read Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, where God gives us some additional information.
0: Okay. So Paul writing to the Ephesians, of course, via the Holy Spirit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, and predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us
1: accepted in the beloved. So first four is key, where it says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So we were created in God's image, which would mean that we were holy, right? God wanted us to be holy. And that was really his intention. He certainly didn't create us to be wicked. And he certainly did not create us because some may be wicked. He knew But his goal was that we should be holy. And there are many holy people today and have been many holy that have lived before us. So we can see in that sense that God accomplished what he was hoping to accomplish. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we get a little bit more information here, right? That we were specifically created To do good works. Well, what are those good works that God wants us to do? God, it says here, prepared them beforehand. And the only way we can find out what those good works are, of course, is by studying God's word. And so there are many things that God gives us to do that are good works, helping other people, comforting, edifying, all these different things that are good works that God clearly spells out for us. So we see that God created man in his image and in his righteousness and gave him the loving qualities and the holiness that he had with the intention, of course, as we just said, that he would do these good works and really you know, benefit society as a whole. He created this beautiful planet that we live on. And if you think about the five senses he gave us and smelling and hearing and touching these senses that allow us to really enjoy not just this planet that God created, but even the foods we eat and the flowers that we smell and you know, the birds that we hear singing, just wonderful. I mean, think about how the very simple things that our bodies can enjoy are some of the most wonderful things. And that's really what God wanted us to do. So the next thing we want to consider though, is that God also gave man free will to solely, you know, really decide on our own, how we want to live our life. And so, you know, God gave us the principles to live by in his word, and he is asking us to follow those things to have a fulfilling life. Now we all understand much like if you once again, are a parent with children as in more than one, you might have one that does everything you say, and you have one that does not. And so, just like that, you know, in humanity in general, there are going to be some that rejects God's. In fact, many, most you might say, reject God's plan, and they instead pursue what they want. And Solomon talked about this in Ecclesiastes chapter seven and verse 29 when he said, Truly, this only I have found that God made man upright, but they, as in man, has sought out many schemes. So, you know, there has to be consequences if you fail to follow what you're asked to do we know that if you are in civil society and you break the law where you live there has to be consequences well it's no different than with god and so he gives us free will but he makes clear that we need to understand there is accountability so romans chapter 3 and verse 23 tells us that every person eventually sins and the result of that sin is spiritual death we see that in romans chapter 6 and verse 23 we also know that it's God's desire that all men repent of transgressing his law, 2 Peter 3, 9, that they receive forgiveness through baptism, Acts two thirty eight, And, you know, God's intention, his hope is that mankind will have a relationship with him through his son and through the Holy Spirit. And so he has given us a way to have a relationship with all three of them. So the Holy Spirit guides us through God's word. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king, and is accountable to God. And so coming back to this original question, you know, understanding all of these truths that the Bible teaches, we can see how it's completely appropriate to have a judgment or a reckoning where man can be justly judged on how he lived his life. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that, right? That all of us will stand before God in judgment to give an account of what we've done in the flesh. So those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ will be punished. And if they do not know God because they are not willing to pursue him or if someone approaches them about the truth, they're not willing to study it, uh, study the Bible and follow it. Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 through 9 says that they will be punished. And of course, the opposite is true. John 10, 27 and 28 makes it clear that those who hear the Lord's voice and do His will will be rewarded with eternal life. So finally, when it comes to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, that was referenced by Kendra, and I'll just read it, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. So the gate and the way is really up to us. And the way to eternal life is narrow because not many people are willing to follow God's plan. Now it's important to understand, God didn't limit how wide the gate or path is. It's man who determines that. And the only reason, once again, it's narrow is because very few men, if you will, choose to follow what God wants them to do. So. Hopefully this helps us to kind of understand that God is good, he's loving, he created an earth that is here for us to enjoy, and he really wants his creation to do the good works that he has prepared for us. And so that really should be our focus, and not that, yes, there will be people that will be wicked and fall away. I guess I would say, Jeff, you don't want to not <laughs> create people because there might be wicked. Instead, focus on all those that have done good and have done what God has wanted them to do. Lots
0: of good points. The one I might you know focus on for a few moments. Again, it's a danger when we, as you know, limited humans, try to put ourselves in God's shoes. and Say, well, if I was God, or since I'm a parent, or et cetera. And we start projecting ourselves onto God, which is, is not something that, that we can really do. We really don't understand God. You know, God is infinite. We're finite. You know, he has always been around. We've been very limited. He is sinless. We are sinners, et cetera. So his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And as you said, basically the best we can do is, you know, have faith, trust, confidence in him, in his word, that he wants what's best for us and that, you know, we should respond in faith with love, adoration, obedience, etc. cetera. He said, focus on the big picture, not necessarily on the uh, details or on the pieces
1: that are intentionally missing that God hasn't given us. That is it, definitely. Okay, Jeff, so the next question comes from Chris, and he asks, what did Jesus mean when he said, you are the salt of the world? And, you know, probably this is one of
0: those, I might say, cultural things, because at least we in the United States, in our modern culture, for us, salt is, you know, something you buy at the supermarket, something you put on the table, something you put a little extra on your food, a lot of cases when you shouldn't, you know, over salt your food. Okay. For the people 2,000 years ago, salt was, you know, played in, in some ways a bigger, more important role. Uh, my suspicion is, Chris is uh, referring to Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, which let me go ahead and quote it here. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Uh, various other translations, instead of losing its flavor, have lose its savor or its saltiness or its taste. Based on a little bit of research I did, not only with modern times, but especially ancient times, salt uh, is a very important compound, a a very useful, a very necessary compound. And basically, kind of serves two key purposes. As we enjoy today, certainly to add taste or flavor to food, but also more so in ancient times than in modern times, used as a preservative you know, to keep food from spoiling. And, you know, Brian, I think even in modern days, there's some cases that that salt is used to, like, pack and preserve fish and, you know, some other things from spoiling. If you sort of take that physical aspect of salt uh, as enhancing taste and flavor, as well as preserving, and you bring that over into the spiritual or figurative realm and start applying it to faithful Christians, and yeah, faithful Christians are also to exert kind of a positive influence on this sinful world, kind of likewise in two ways. You know, one by being you know pleasant, reasonable, personable, kind, thoughtful. You know, sort of adding you know taste and flavor, if you will, to life or, or to the people we encounter. Uh, but also in the sense of uh, as a preservative, you know, trying to influence people to be saved, to be spiritually preserved, if you will, and in fact, even in the same context of Matthew 5, if you keep on reading past verse 12 to verse 16, Jesus uses a very similar analogy with that of a candle on a lampstand uh, in comparison with Christians. Uh, Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Glorify your Father in heaven. A very similar thought in terms of influencing others brian anything you'd like to add to that
1: no good answer and i really appreciate focusing on that cultural element because no doubt there are certain things that we read in the bible that don't immediately resonate with this right because our culture is different all right true
0: okay your turn so Baseo writes in if we have a desire to commit a certain sin resist following through with it are we still guilty of that sin because it is already in our heart, we might as well commit it? Or does resisting that make a difference because we refrained from committing that particular sin and we are living as Christ ordered, you know, not to sin anymore? Here we have temptation to sin and resisting, not falling through. It's kind of a nuanced question, Brian. So, how would you respond?
1: Yeah, it's uh, actually a very thought-provoking question. And so I guess the answer is really, it depends. So let's consider a couple of examples. So let's say you have a disagreement with someone and it turns into what we might call a heated argument. And let's say it turns into shouting back and forth, whatever it may be. Emotions have risen to the point where you might desire to strike someone out of your anger. So you're tempted to hit them, let's say. But you think the better of it, you come to your senses and you say, no, I'm not going to do that. And so then you don't. Well, as a result, you don't strike them and therefore you have not sinned. Another scenario, you see a physically attractive woman walking down the road and she is dressed immodestly. modestly. And by that, I mean, she has uh, you know, skin exposed, parts of her body exposed. Now, instead of looking away to resist any potential temptation, you instead stare at her and think about committing fornication with her. Now, even if you do not follow through with the physical act of fornication, you are still guilty of sin because, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, I guess I'm saying it depends on the scenario. In some cases, yes, like this that we just talked about, absolutely is a sin. In other cases, just because you had the thought, and you did the right thing and turned away from it, that would not be sin. And so we have this wonderful promise from God that we will never be tempted more than we are able to handle. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 13, it says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So think about how wonderful that promise is, because no one can say, oh, I couldn't help but commit that sin. No, the Bible says you're always going to have a way of escape. So going back to the example of the two people that get in an argument, yes, you might have wanted to hit that person, but God said the way of escape is to turn and walk away, or the way of escape is to come to your senses and resist that and calm down. And that's what God has promised that he would do. Wonderful promise. So yes, resisting that sin makes a difference because we build up our spiritual foundation and some things that used to be tempting to us are no longer because we have a strong foundation. And so that's just something else to consider. And I'll leave our listeners with one final passage and that is in Galatians chapter five and verse 16. It says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So that's teaching us by saying, walk in the spirit, you know, walk according to God's word, which was revealed by the Holy spirit. And so in that sense, you're walking in the spirit. And if you do that, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So therefore you're going to be a lot less likely to even be tempted in the first place because your focus is on doing what's right. Jeff, over to you. Yeah. Lots of
0: good points. And some of them kind of on the subtle side. And what some of our listeners may pick up on is, you know, there are some sins in the Bible that are associated with uh, an activity, something you do. There are some sins that are associated with what you say. But as you pointed out, there are some sins associated with what's going on in your head, what you're thinking or lusting after, you know, as you indicated. But in a lot of ways, it kind of boils down to: What do you do with this temptation? Do you give in? Do you dwell on it? Do you feed it? Do you let it take over, or do you go, ah, no, I ain't gonna go there. Back away, step back, look the other way, uh, as you indicated, and you know, turn from it. So, yeah, very interesting, kind of a kind of a nuanced question. Brian, any other thoughts before we move on to the next one?
1: Yeah, just wanting to piggyback a little bit on what you said about, you know, in our minds. I I feel like, Jeff, I don't know about you, but as you are younger and you you mature, you know, sometimes you think, well, I can think whatever I want as long as I don't do anything about it. Right. And the Bible is saying that is not true. I can window shop so long as I don't buy. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount dispelled many of those kinds of rumors, right? Where he talked about if you hate your brother, it's in essence murder and you've committed murder in your heart. So, something important to think about because we can all be frustrated at times and even though we may not vocalize it or take any action, if we think sinful things against others, uh, we have sinned. Good point. All right, Jeff, the next question for you comes from Lawrence and he says, what in the Bi- or what is the Bible view on same-sex marriage? And you know, I guess it's interesting, Jeff, it, globally now. This was kind of a thing a few years ago as far as an issue in the United States. But more and more now, this has become a global question, if you will. Or even beyond being a
0: global question and just being, you know, settled. That within society, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. But it is, as we'll kind of go into in in a few moments, it's sort of like a natural, healthy thing. And, you know, why would you even bother saying anything about it? Certainly for any student of history over the last, oh, I don't know. Thirty years, fifty years, uh, eighty years, etc This topic that I'll, I'll sort of generalize as homosexuality has gone from being illegal, you know, according to the law of the land, to something that's tolerated, something that is embraced and celebrated. Like as mentioned here, with you know gay rights like marriage, or started out as Pride Week, which I think now is a whole month and even being to the point of a, a specially protected status in law. Uh, we've also seen practice of homosexuality sort of blossom under what I might call an ever widening umbrella or sexual umbrella that in some ways these days is is loosely called a string of letters if you're not familiar with them uh, but at least the first you know half dozen or so LGBTQ+, plus, which is sort of like a, an umbrella for your sexual preference toward others, your view of sexual orientation for yourself, you know, self-identification of your quote-unquote gender, or even to the point of, you know, sexually indoctrinating, you know, young children in public schools. So... Certainly, society has almost completely gone all in, so to speak, with, you know, homosexuality and same-sex marriage, et etc. And, to be very plain, a lot of religions have followed that as well, which I'll get into a little bit later on. The question that Lawrence asks is, what does the Bible have to say? Well, as you go through the Scriptures, there's a fairly consistent message from, basically, Genesis through Revelation. Now, admittedly, depending on the translation you use, you will most likely not find the word gay, or homosexual, or lesbian, or bisexual, or gender identity, or, or those sort of modern terms uh, in your Bible. But as you look through several scriptures, which I'll, I'll rattle through here pretty quickly, there's a very consistent and very plain message, a concern God has regarding this kind of uh, sexual activity. First of all, all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, in the garden, what was the pattern, male, female, and leaving the father and mother, cleaving to his wife, Genesis 2.24. Skip over about 16, 18 chapters to Genesis 18. You'll encounter the first mention of what we would identify as homosexual behavior, Genesis 18, beginning verse 16, through Genesis 19, verse 29, which is associated with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Continuing on under the law of Moses, Leviticus chapters 18 through 20, lots of ordinances regarding or regulating uh, sexual activity include prohibitions against homosexual conduct. In fact, if you sort of look around those that context of Leviticus 18 through 20, these kinds of sins were called abominations. Not only for the Israelites, but also for the Gentile inhabitants of the land. That they were uh, the that the Israelites were about to enter. So law of Moses. Fast forward, New Testament. Jesus, Matthew chapter nineteen, verse five, referring back to Genesis, back to the creation, and back to God's original design for marriage. Again, male and female. Continuing forward with uh, his apostle Paul, Romans chapter one. Versus is roughly 18 through 32 in a somewhat sexually, you know, graphic, explicit kind of language. It talks about the homosexual acts and other sins of the flesh using terms like lusts, impurity, being dishonored, degrading, unnatural, indecent, error. And kind of depending on your translation, you know, those terms are from the New American Standard. Continuing on, uh first Corinthians chapter seven, verses one through five, once again, one man, one woman relationship. That's the biblical answer to sexual lust and or sexual desires and sexual morality or immorality. Uh, Hebrews thirteen four, same thing, condemning sexual activity outside of marriage. Jude seven, coming all the way back to Prince and you know, Sodom Gomorrah, using terms like indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So, I think the message throughout the scriptures, again, you know, beginning to the end, is fairly consistent uh, that homosexual behavior, uh, homosexual activity, and including gay marriage, even though it's enjoying a lot of public support, is condemned uh, in the scriptures to include under the New Testament. Uh, As I said before, there's even a lot of quote-called Christian religions that are currently allowing practicing homosexuals into their membership, Sometimes into position, uh, leadership positions, sometimes blessing gay unions. I did, Brian, just a little bit of research and at least based on Wikipedia. Some of the more notable quote unquote Christian religions do this. The United Church of Christ, Episcopal Church, the Association of Welcoming and Affirming Baptists. So there's there's part of the, the Baptist group, the American National Catholic Church. So a, a kind of a branch of the Catholic Church. Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Affirming Pentecostal Church International, so some of the Pentecostals, uh, Christian Church or Disciples of Christ, Metropolitan Community Church. A little bit surprising, there's even a branch of uh, Mormonism called the Restoration Church of Jesus Christ, which allows these kinds of things. Quickly, to kind of wrap this up and give just a little bit of balance, in case people might come away with the wrong conclusion, everything we've said Certainly provides absolutely no justification for any sort of verbal harassment, persecution, violence against you know gays, lesbians, homosexuals, etc. That they like us are all part of John three sixteen. God so loved the world. The other point I'll want to make, which a lot of people in our audience who are sort of uh, you know anti homosexual may not realize, that the same scriptures that condemn Homosexual behavior also condemn fornication or premarital sex or adultery. So if you're sort of against or speaking out against, you know, homosexual behavior, just be sure, which is consistent with scripture, just be sure you're consistent and also including under those very same scriptures any sort of sexual activity outside of a sexual marriage between a Man and a woman. There you go, Brian. Anything you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, really good thoughts, especially on the language. I appreciate it's taking a little bit of time to talk about some of the terms that the Bible uses. And you know, I'll encourage our listeners also to look at some of the actual statements in the Bible that go right along with some of those words that Jeff mentioned. For instance, over in Romans chapter one, you know, in verse 20, it talks about just by looking at the creation, looking at the organization of the universe. It tells us that there is a creator, but there are many who will not acknowledge God. They'll reject Him, and so they instead will follow things that man creator. They won't believe in anything except themselves. You know, humanism. And verse twenty four says, you know, if that's what they want, then God gives them up to that uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Verse twenty four makes it clear that we can dishonor our bodies. You go on down to verse 26, it says, For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, the men, verse 27, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. So when you read statements like that, and one thing we see, Jeff, in the United States today is this narrative that if you do not fully embrace homosexuality as a lifestyle, then you actually hate and you don't love. Well, that falls into Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, which says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Because you can't read passages like this that talks about when men committing sins sexually with each other, being shameful you can't overlook the fact that that's how God defines it. And so it's not you and I just being against homosexuals. It's God saying, you're leaving the natural use of what I created, and that is a man and woman to be able to have children and have a family and those kinds of things, and you've turned it upside down. So that's fine if you want to do that, but understand it's shameful. And I, I bring all this up, Jeff, because some people, more and more, as you just pointed out, right, all these different religions that are now embracing homosexuality, they can't explain away verses like this because it makes it very clear that it's shameful. And so I just want, you know, once again, our listeners to go to the Bible and see what God has to say and tune out the noise of the world because that's not what's important. Following God's what's important.
0: Uh, and I think you make some good points that probably bear repeating to some degree. And that is, first and foremost, you can't just go along with the world. You know, wherever the world wants to go, you can't just go along with them. Secondly, just because something is legal, doesn't make it moral. You know, third thought, just because a religion endorses something, doesn't make it right. Again, we got, and just because they claim to be Christian, following God, loving God, etc., Uh, you got to dig into the Scriptures and compare what they're saying or doing or practicing with what the Scriptures really say. And the last point I'll kind of make is, it's as you said, it's becoming, I'm not certain how much further it's going to go in this direction, but somewhat hostile for people to say the kinds of things that we've been talking about today, labeled as hate speech, labeled as discriminatory, labeled as being homophobic. Labeled as you know any number of different uh, labels, and in some cases, you know, civil actions have been uh, carried out against you know people expressing their faith, particularly if they're like business owners, et cetera. So we we kind of live in perilous times when trends are unfortunately somewhat negative. Regardless of the trends, regardless of the circumstances or modern cultural changes, you go back to the Bible. A lot of cases, it may still say, "Nope, it's." Still wrong. It was, you know, is was wrong thousands of years ago in Genesis. It was wrong 2,000 years ago at the time of Christ. It's still wrong 2,000 years later. Nothing. Yep. Anything else, Brian, before we move to the next question? Uh, no, let's go ahead. Okay, okay. All right, so you get this one from Steve, which is kind of a thought-provoking one. When you see Christianity as levels, what is your description of someone who is in, quote-unquote, basic Christianity? intermediate christianity and finally advanced christianity
1: yeah it is interesting i can't say that i've been asked a question like this but it's fine it certainly makes sense to say you know are there differences and what are there and certainly i could give my own opinion on what these levels would be but i think we would all agree it's subjective you know you might have a completely different opinion right those who are listening might say you know i think there's actually four levels well Well, what does the Bible say? That's the key here, right? And fortunately, the Bible does give us a distinction between at least two levels, if you will, and that is those who are spiritual babes, if you will, like those who are new converts or those who are what we might call immature Christians, and then those who are more mature. So that's kind of the distinction the Bible makes. And let's look at a couple passages that illustrate that. So over in Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, Here the Hebrew writer is rebuking the brethren there because they have been Christians long enough where they should be spiritually mature enough to teach others, but yet they weren't able to because they were ignorant of the truth. So here the Hebrew writer says, beginning in verse 12 of Hebrews 5, for Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. It goes on to say in verse 13, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So when we learn the truth, it's one thing to learn what God wants us to do. It's another to actually put it into practice and gain that experience and wisdom that's related to the knowledge that allows you to become more mature. Now, over in First Corinthians chapter 3, we see Paul here rebuking the church at Corinth. And he says in verse 1 of First Corinthians chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, Paul says, and not with solid food. For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you are not still able, or still not able. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So Paul here is really powerfully expressing to them that first off, they also shouldn't be babes in Christ and a lot of what's holding them back is that even though they may be knowledgeable of the truth they are allowing themselves to be filled with envy strife and divisions which is a sign of spiritual immaturity so you know it's important for us to realize that yeah you know, these are some real obvious things about spiritual maturity but it's not as cut and dry as are you a babe or are you mature it really is a lot more nuanced than that and so for instance you know we all have areas i think we would have to admit where we are still spiritual babes and it changes or is unique to each one of us. Maybe we have a problem with how we treat others. Maybe we have a problem with our temper or on the other side of the coin, if you will, maybe we are more mature in several areas like good works that we do for others, willing to teach others. So often, Jeff, I found it's kind of a balance, right? All of us have areas where we're strong and where we're weak. What you don't want is to be a spiritual babe across the spectrum or you know across a wide range of spiritual qualities and as a result are unable to teach or defend the truth or do things like that so something for us to keep in mind and ultimately you know our spiritual maturation process is a lifelong process and so one of the thing we don't we want to guard against is to not be puffed up to the point where as we become more knowledgeable we now become arrogant or you know, feel like we've what we might call arrived or are fully mature. Instead, we should always be testing ourselves, as second Corinthians chapter thirteen and verse five says, to see where we're weak, to see where we can strengthen ourselves and really focus in, in becoming more mature in that area, yeah, certainly, it's a very uh, nuanced
0: kind of question. As you indicate, you know new converts may not know that much, you know they're they're babes, the kind of food they can consume. Incorporate into their lives might be milk kinds of topics. At given time, given nourishment, given encouragement, given growth, would expect them to become more mature and start as you would with an infant. You know, weaning them off of milk and more onto solid food. Uh, For Christians, some of the the more difficult. Uh, topics or more difficult passages or harder to understand one that just kind of pops into my mind is you know new converts immediately want to jump into the book of revelation right and just sink their teeth into this big gristly meaty
1: piece of steak seems so interesting yeah
0: (laughs) yeah really when really no no, let's go back and let's do some basic stuff first (laughs) before we get into that the other thing i just might you know toss out there for consideration is kind of depending upon how spiritually mature you are might have along with it some degree of wisdom and how best to engage a situation or a person or better ways of withstanding uh temptation or you know greater levels of uh self-confidence and you know dealing with others etc So, yeah kind of a lot of uh, uh you know nuanced so to speak, uh, aspects to this concept of going from being a babe to being a more mature, wise, seasoned Christian who's had his uh, senses exercised to discern between good and evil, to quote a scripture.
1: Yeah, and one other interesting element there is, you know, if you're remaining idle, kind of like with exercise or strength training or something like that, either you're getting stronger or you're getting weaker. And I feel like spiritually... The same thing can happen. You might be strong in an area, but if you stop studying, if you stop applying, you become weaker and you could go from that mature individual to a babe in the sense that you're not reminding yourselves that you're not growing stronger, therefore you're growing weaker. So anyhow. Well, and I liked
0: your reference too. It's, it's not a process that's across the board. I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, video games. You don't reach level 16 across all aspects of your life, so to speak. In in some, you might be less mature. Some, you might be more mature. There's some areas you're weaker in. There's some areas you're stronger in. You want to, as we would in any, like in sports or business or whatever, you you want to play to your strengths while you're building up your weaknesses. So there's kind of that aspect as well.
1: So Brian, looks like we're kind of getting down near the end of our time. Anything else you want to add? Uh, Nope. Hopefully our listeners found it uh, helpful to get a sense of some of the questions that we get. And so we always like to be able to share them.
0: I appreciate that, Brian. And for our listeners, like we always try to do at the end of our podcast, give uh, you references back to our website at biblequestions.org where you can dig into a lot of resources that we have online that are free for your use that are in the form of articles, uh, answers to previous questions, et cetera. A lot of them are in our topical index, uh, our A to Z topical index. And for some of the topics we've talked about today, for example, you can look under H for Hades and Hell, I for Influence, which Christians should have, N for the Nature of God, G for Temptations, F for Fornication, H for Homosexuality, M for Marriage, as well as G for Growth, and C for Christian living. I might also mention that in addition to the topical index, if you go under our lessons menu, there's a Christian living subsection uh, under the lessons menu. We'll take you to even more material, which is more of like a class lesson style. Uh, as opposed to individual articles and answered questions. So lots of material, lots of scriptures, and always we would encourage our listeners to dig into it and look through your Bible, study the scriptures, and inform your life to do the
1: kinds of things that God would have you to do in order to be faithful. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.